When was the last time you meditated, I mean, really meditated on the sufferings of Christ? Well, now is the acceptable time because Lent begins this Wednesday. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, uh, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I have prayed the Liturgy of the Hours off and on for many years. And sometimes, though, I take a break and pray one of the various little offices that were specifically introduced for the use of lay people. I found a book in December called Little Offices of the Catholic Church, a pocketbook of hours for personal devotion. I got the Kindle version, and it includes several of the little offices. For example, the little office of the Immaculate Conception, which I have prayed many times over the years, the little office of the Holy Name, and just in time for Lent, the little office of the Passion. So that's one way to meditate on the Passion and honor our Lord's suffering this Lent. But there are some other more common ways, and we're going to talk about that a little later. Also this week, I'm going to inaugurate a new segment that I call Red Letter Catholicism, so stay tuned for that. But to kick things off, I read some rather, well, frankly, shocking quotes from Father Thomas, uh, Thomas Wynandy last week. Uh, not the most shocking I've ever heard, but, but shocking partly because Father Wynandy is a Capuchin friar, an American theological conservative. He's been a theologian of repute for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And while he did write a somewhat critical assessment of Pope Francis in 2019, he subsequently co-authored a three-part series for the Church Life Journal defending Pope Francis's documents, uh, Traditionis Custodes, which radically restricts the traditional Latin Mass, and Desiderio Desideravi, which exalts the new liturgy as the only game in town. So in other words, Father Wynandy is no traditionalist. But some of the things that he said about Pope Francis in his recent interview with La Verita are, I'll put it this way, I won't quote them here. Now, I put a link in the show notes, you can read it for yourself, and you will discover that he is unflinching in his denouncement of the current pontificate. But I get it. Fiducia Supplicans was for, I think, for Father Wynandy, and uh, like a lot of other solid, orthodox, conservative Catholics, it was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And you know, they've been holding back for 10 years now, and, and it's like the dam has finally burst and it's all coming out at once. Uh, not so uh, for years truly, though. See, I recall at the time when Jorge Bergoglio was elected pope, I had a weekly show on the Radio Maria network called Shield of Faith, and I may have been the first public casualty of Francis fatigue. About three weeks into his papacy, I announced on the air that I was not going to spend any more time trying to explain whatever the Pope said that week. And, and I was still taking the editorial stance that the Pope was being misrepresented by the press. But as I said at the time, the pontiff has many able defenders, and I have other things to talk about, and only an hour a week in which to talk about them. Uh, since joining the ranks here at VMPR, I have been at times, shall we say, somewhat less circumspect. Uh, in any case, next month is the 11th anniversary of the current pontificate, and it is just as exasperating and as exhausting as ever. You know, I've long since made the trip from confused and confounded to shocked and scandalized to angry and aggravated to, to finally simply worn out. And I read a good piece by Eric Sammons to this effect on the Crisis Magazine website the other day. It was called A Wearying Pontificate Nears Its End, Now, in which he posits just how tiresome it's all become. He says, probably nothing Francis could do or say at this point would surprise us, although he still desperately makes every effort to do so. 
we repeat a tiresome cycle, he says, and then he enumerates all, almost word for word what I said some weeks ago uh, regarding the scandal surrounding fiducia supplicants, that by now th the pattern is clear. And Mr. Sammons lists it in five steps. Step one, the Pope does or says something controversial. Two, conservative and traditional Catholics criticize his actions. Traditionalists directly, conservatives more obliquely, he says. Step three, progressive Catholics rejoice and take the Pope to mean exactly what he says. Step four, non-progressive Pope splainers, what I call the, the Novus Ordo apologetics machine, storm social media to explain that the Pope doesn't actually mean what he says. And then step five is return to step one, or as, as I put it the other week, rinse and repeat. In other words, the dust is never allowed to settle on one egregious episode before the next one begins. And this is a well-known tactic within you know, corrupt political regimes, but in Catholicism, not so much. Now, considering the ill effects of such pontifical policy, Mr. Sammons asks some hard questions. First, is the church's moral voice in the world becoming stronger? Are bad actors in the church being exposed and removed from office? Are souls being won to Christ? I'm afraid that to ask these questions is to answer them. But he doesn't stop there. He asks how many people who suffer with same-sex attraction are still in that destructive lifestyle because the Catholic Church seems to give it her stamp of approval. Or how many non-Catholics don't, don't even consider conversion because the Church seems to have a leader who doesn't want them to become Catholic. And how many Catholics have become so scandalized by this pontificate that they have either left the Church for orthodoxy or set of acantism or even atheism? Now, even if the Pope is misunderstood, at some point he needs to take responsibility for how he's perceived. Still, according to Mr. Sammons, there's been good to come out of this pontificate, even if unintentionally. After all, God can work good out of anything, and that may be a bit harsh. Um, I would add that Pope Francis has said many good and edifying things. Uh, next week, I, I plan to share some words of Pope Francis on the Beatitudes that I think can stand with the best of papal teaching. You know, uh, being critical and being judgmental are, you know, two different things. But most importantly, in my estimation, uh, Mr. Sammons makes the point that thanks to this pontificate, quote, future Catholics will be more wary of creating a cult of personality around whomever happens to be sitting in the chair of Peter. Now, throughout our history, some popes have been more popular than others but without engendering personality cults. And that's a good thing, because personality cults typically do not do succession well. The Catholic Church has survived for 2,000 years precisely because she managed to avoid that particular pitfall. And then came Pope John Paul II. You know, that uh, a bona fide cult of personality formed around him is undeniable. He toured the world like a rock star. He was met everywhere with crowds chanting, JP2, we love you. I mean, everyone knew that Pope John Paul would be a hard act to follow, precisely because he was the first massively successful mass media pope. But that's not all there was to it. He also left an impressive legacy in the form of papal teaching. You know, they say if you were to print out all his papal documents, they would occupy some 15 linear feet of shelf space. Now, when Joseph Ratzinger was chosen to succeed John Paul II, I suspect the cardinal electors cardinal electors, that's hard to say, 
<clears throat> they were looking for someone who could implement the content of those documents, which is still largely confined to the ivory tower of Catholic academics. And I have the sense that uh, that was what Benedict XVI was trying to do. Francis, on the contrary, not so much. Now, speaking of succession and mass media, perhaps we can take a lesson from Christ Cathedral in Orange County. Originally, it was the Crystal Cathedral, you may recall, home of Dr. Robert Schuler's weekly Hour of Power TV broadcast. But how many people, I wonder, including those who attended services there or watched Dr. Schuler on TV, were even aware that the Crystal Cathedral was technically a Dutch Reformed church? Probably very few. Uh, from all appearances, that community was far more interested in Dr. Schuler himself and his power of positive thinking message than any, you know, traditionally Dutch Reformed doctrinal position. The result, of course, is that when Dr. Schuler retired, his popular religious empire crumbled. And it's interesting to note that when he went bankrupt and had to sell the property, the Catholic Church was interested, but the Dutch Reformed Church was not. Uh, in fact, Dr. Schuler actually got a better offer from Chapman University than the Diocese of Orange, but he chose to sell to the Catholic Church anyway. And why, when he so needed the money? Well, to his credit, Dr. Schuler said that he wanted the iconic building to remain a church, and he knew that if he sold it to the Catholics, it would continue on, remaining, in his words, a place for Christ forever. And that's the point. You see, unlike the Crystal Cathedral that could not endure without Dr. Schuler, Christ Cathedral will certainly endure beyond the current Bishop of Orange, just as the Universal Church will certainly survive the current Bishop of Rome. We have the assurance of our Lord himself that the church he founded will survive until he comes again in glory, even if it's reduced to a remnant. And that's because it is his church. Hence, as Cardinal Burke recently reminded us, Catholics are Christians not papists. That is, we are not followers of the Pope, whoever he may be. Rather, we are followers of Christ. And so is he. And that's no nonsense. All right, when we come back, I got a new segment called Red Letter Catholicism, which is uh, going to be focused on the words of our Lord himself, or at least as a jumping off point, taking some uh, quote from our good Lord from the Scripture. Also later on, we're going to talk about devotion to the Passion, with Lent coming up, an important uh, topic to be sure. Also, um, we're going to look at the readings. Actually, we're going to focus on the Epistle from this Sunday's um, Sunday readings from the uh, the Ordinary Form, which was, if I'm not mistaken, the sixth Sunday of Ordinary Time. So lots of good stuff coming up on the program today. Hope you can stay with us and uh, listen to all of that. Also, I wanted to mention that the uh, Spiritual Warfare Conference in March is already sold out. It really honestly is. I know there are people saying, is there a waiting list? No, there's not. In fact, we, we may be a little bit overbooked. So I do want to tell you, though, as a consolation, you may certainly watch the live stream. You can go to vmpr.org and... Um, and register for that even as we speak so you're not going to miss out on the conference and then of course you also get to uh, keep the recordings in perpetuity so all of that uh, coming up on no nonsense catholic when we return right after these messages
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Time now for a new segment called Red Letter Catholicism, which title was inspired by how some editions of the New Testament print the words of Christ in red ink. The idea is that each such segment will be an examination of some scriptural teaching or admonition spoken by Jesus in his own words. So for the first ever edition of Red Letter Catholicism, we will be looking at the Golden Rule. In Luke 6.31, the Lord uh, Jesus tells each of us to do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the golden rule, to treat other people the way you would like to be treated. And this scriptural admonition is simple, but it's truly profound. And it reminds us of two important things. Uh, for one, everyone is struggling with something. And number two, everyone can benefit from the love and kindness of others, starting with you and me. You know, the golden rule is really a commandment from God taught by the Lord Jesus and is therefore a fundamental aspect of Christianity. That is, if we want mercy and compassion for ourselves, we should show mercy and compassion to others. Because far too often we seek mercy for ourselves, but are only too ready to deal out judgment on others. But based on the words of our Lord, that's clearly not how God wants things to be. Especially when we see others suffering, that's that's an opportunity for us to exercise the golden rule, which we should take advantage of by treating them the way we would want to be treated if we were in their situation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Do not judge, so that you in turn may not be judged. For you will be judged in the same way that you judge others, and the measure that you use for others will be used to measure you. Now here the Lord Jesus takes the golden rule one step further by teaching us that God is going to hold us responsible for the way that we treat others. Those who judge others separate themselves from their neighbors. Those who love them are, are present, completely present to their neighbors. As someone said, uh, God did not give you a conscience to judge others, but to judge yourself. And he promises that if we show compassion and mercy to others, we will be shown compassion and mercy. But if we are judgmental and critical of others, we should expect to be treated the same way by him. Now, we're going to look at some Bible verses uh, about this in a moment. But first, what does the Catechism say about the Golden Rule? Well, as in Scripture itself, the specific term Golden Rule is not in the Catechism proper, uh, but the concept is well attested in several paragraphs that do refer to the Golden Rule as a fundamental moral principle that guides human behavior. I read something interesting in paragraph 1789, where it says, one may never do evil so that good may result from it. And what does that have to do with the golden rule? Uh, you know, Jesus gave us the golden rule uh, in a positive formulation in Luke 6.31 and Matthew 7.12, where the principle that one may never do evil so that good may result from it reflects uh, the negative form of the golden rule which advises, treating, uh, advises against treating others in a way that you would not want to be treated. Right? That might be considered the original um, formula of the golden rule in Scripture and comes from the book of Tobit, chapter 4, verse 15. Do not do to anyone what you yourself hate. Right? That emphasizes the importance of avoiding actions that are morally wrong, even if they're done with good intentions or for an ostensibly good outcome. Remember, St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But the Catechism also highlights the positive aspect of the Golden Rule. In uh, paragraph 1933, referring to the commandment given by Jesus to his disciples in John 13, verse 34, I give you a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you should also love one another. 
Catechism says this law is called the new commandment because it inspires the disciples to imitate the love of Jesus Christ. This new commandment captures the essence of the golden rule by urging believers to love others as Christ has loved them. Furthermore, the, the Catechism emphasizes the importance of treating others with respect and, and justly. Paragraph 1934 says, Created in the image of the one God, and equally endowed with rational souls, all men have the same nature and the same origin. See, this recognition of the inherent dignity and equality of all human beings is closely connected to the golden rule because it calls for treating others with fairness, with compassion, with respect. So while the Catechism may not explicitly use the term golden rule, it certainly affirms the principles underlying this fundamental moral teaching. The catechetical teaching on the golden rule emphasizes the importance of avoiding evil actions while promoting love and respect and justice towards others in harmony with the words of Jesus Christ. Now, there's plenty of Bible verses that teach us not to be judgmental. I'll give you three examples among many. The first being from the words of Jesus in Luke 6.37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. It's based on this that St. James says in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 13, for judgment will be without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. St. Paul says in Romans 2, 1, therefore you have no excuse, whoever you may be, when you pass judgment on others. For in judging others, you condemn yourself, since you are doing the same things. You know, I suspect some people might look back at our last segment and say, well, that was a little judgy, right? But the, the difference is that, that judgment and prejudice are not the same thing, and just as mercy and laxity are not the same thing. See, as always, the Lord Jesus leads by example. In Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, the evangelist shares with us the example of how Jesus treated others with grace and mercy while he was on the earth. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. A man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and Pharisees watched him closely to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they would have a charge to bring against him. But Jesus was fully aware of their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here and stand before us. The man got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I put this question to you. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? To save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, and in Matthew's version, he says, looking at them with anger, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed among themselves what they might do with Jesus. According to the, uh, the Pharisaic tradition, no healing could be done on the Sabbath because they argued that healing was practicing medicine and a person could not practice their profession on the Sabbath because it violated the requirement that Jews do no work on the seventh day. Now, the Pharisees were looking for a way to judge Jesus because it was more important to them to protect you know, their rules, really their status, than it was to free a person from suffering. And when Jesus proceeded to heal the man, his enemies were furious. I mean, not only had he read their minds, but he exposed the animosity and the pride in their hearts. 
And it's ironic that their hatred, combined with this outward zeal for the law, that drove them hypocritically to plot his murder, <laughs> an act which is clearly against the law. So this episode teaches us that the remedy for our judgmentalism lies in acknowledging our own sins. Acknowledging that we are all sinners is one of the best ways that we can become less judgmental. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we claim that we are without sin, we are only deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And what's the truth? The truth is that without God's grace, I mean, that is left to our own devices, none of us would be found worthy to enter heaven. It's only through the sacrifice of Christ that a relationship with God is even possible in the first place. Catholic Christians don't inhabit some superior spiritual domain that's removed from daily life. You know, if we do not, in all honesty, acknowledge that sin's present in our lives with all its weight, we oppose the whole testimony of Scripture. And such an attitude would render the very sacrifice of Christ for our redemption insignificant. Deliverance is not obtained by evading the truth of our sinfulness, but by embracing the grace of God who forgives and justifies us in the very depths of our being. Hence the words of St. Paul in Romans 3, 23 and 24. All have sinned and are thereby deprived of the glory of God, and all are justified by the gift of his grace that is given freely through the redemption in Christ Jesus. And in Titus 3, 5, not because of any righteous deeds on our part, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the bath of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now here, Paul outlines the effects of baptism, rebirth, forgiveness of sins by Christ, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and the right to eternal life, of which the indwelling Spirit is a pledge. I mean, you take a look at 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. And as the Apostle says in Romans 5, 8, thus God proved his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the words of Jesus, the golden rule teaches us to do to others as you would have them do to you. Can you imagine just how beautiful life on earth would be if we all lived by this command? As committed Catholic Christians, we, we are to show others compassion and mercy, not judgment. And the Lord Jesus says the way that we treat others is the way that God will treat us. If we show others compassion and mercy, we will receive compassion and mercy from God. So let's remember the advice of St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Remove all forms of bitterness and wrath and anger and shouting and slander, as well as all malice from your lives. Rather, be kind to one another and compassionate, and forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. The Lord Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another, just as I have loved you, so you should also love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And that's no nonsense. All right. I mentioned at the top of the show uh, that Lent is coming. Um, February is the month of the Holy Family. It's also a time to honor the passion of our Lord. And there are many ways to do so. I mentioned um, that praying the, the little office of the passion, right? And the little offices, by the way, are arranged like the traditional divine office. 
So like every three hours throughout the day, you stop and say these, you know, uh, specific prayers. There's an order to them, right? It's, they're called the hours. And uh, the nice thing about the, these little offices is they tend to be very brief. You know, it'd be quite challenging. And it's and it's still quite challenging to, to really stop every three hours, you know, I at six o'clock in the morning and then at nine o'clock in the morning and then at noon and then at three and then at six again and then at nine again and then at midnight to, to you know, stop whatever you're doing and pray. And it's interesting, you know, the, the, the smartphone has actually helped me out because I set an alarm to go off every three hours. And uh, because you have the various options, I made it sound like church bells. So, you know, it's kind of, I feel like I, I'm connecting myself to the Middle Ages, you know, the, the, the church bells are ringing for all the, the uh, hours all throughout the day. But uh, February is a time to honor the Passion of the Lord. There's lots of ways to do so. And we're going to talk about them when we come back uh, with more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Post Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we shall return after these messages. Now, I just mentioned that February is a time to honor the Passion of our Lord and that there's many ways to do so. And this should come as no surprise, considering that uh, St. Alphonsus Liguri said, there's no practice more profitable for the entire sanctification of the soul than frequent meditation on the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And there are several common methods. Uh, first and foremost, to read the gospel accounts of the Passion. You can pray the sorrowful mysteries of the Rosary, make the Stations of the Cross, Practice devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. Pray the uh, Chaplet of Divine Mercy. Okay, now we're going to take a deeper look at this list with uh, reading the scriptural accounts of the Passion coming first. See, the Gospels provide four divinely inspired accounts of the last days and moments of Jesus Christ's life on earth. And these scriptural passages are our primary source of knowledge about the Passion. And prayerfully reading them makes a great preparation for Lent, which, uh, again, starts this Wednesday, by the way. Um, the Passion is in Matthew, chapters 26 and 27, in Mark, chapters 14 and 15, in Luke, chapters 22 and 23, and in John, chapters 18 and 19. You should really uh, resolve this Lent to read those, uh, what is it, eight chapters of Scripture. All right, uh, the second on the list is the Sorrowful Mysteries of the Rosary, uh, which are traditionally prayed each Tuesday and Friday. But did you know that traditionally, during the season of Lent, the faithful are invited to pray them daily? And that is a great way to honor the Passion, because the Sorrowful Mysteries detail the agony and death of our Lord, the agony in the garden, the scourging at the pillar, the crowning with thorns, carrying of the cross, and the crucifixion, of Jesus. Uh, and then next is the Stations of the Cross, which of course is the even more extensive um, look, uh, you know, a prayerful look at his passion. Probably the most uh, popular way to participate in the Stations of the Cross is to pray with your parish community on the Fridays of Lent, right? You go and, and uh, typically everybody just stays in their pew and uh, the priest and uh, some uh, acolytes go around from station to station and lead the prayers. 
But uh, you can make the stations, you know, uh, privately any time of the year and really any day of the week, although they are associated with Friday uh, for obvious reasons, because Christ died on a Friday. And I think it's well to remember this devotion was brought to medieval Europe by St. Francis of Assisi after his pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the 13th century. He made the Stations of the Cross in Jerusalem and said, you know, that, that this would be a great spiritual practice for the folks back home. And so as you approach each station, it's customary to genuflect, if you're physically able, and pray the prayer that was composed by St. Francis. Adoremus te Christe et benedicimus tibi. Quia per sanctum crucem tuum redemisti mundum. We adore you, O Christ, and we bless you, because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. Beyond that, I mean, technically there are no required prayers. You need only go from station to station in the church and meditate for a bit on, on each episode. And while uh, one of the most popular methods, uh, methods rather for making the stations is the one according to St. Alphonsus Liguri, who we quoted just a moment ago, a variety of ways have developed to help the faithful make fruitful use of this devotion, and most Catholic prayer books include a way of the cross with a little meditations for each of the stations, sometimes scriptures. So the 14 stations, traditional 14 stations, are Jesus is condemned to death, Jesus takes up his cross, Jesus falls the first time, Jesus meets his sorrowful mother, uh, Simon helps Jesus to carry the cross. Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. Jesus falls a second time. Jesus meets the women of Jerusalem. Jesus falls the third time. Jesus is stripped of his garments. Jesus is nailed to the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus' body is taken down from the cross. And then Jesus' body is placed in the tomb. That is a lot of you know, uh, fodder for fruitful meditation. Number four is devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. Francis tells us, uh, St. Francis rather, tells us that um, when he made the stations across in Jerusalem, that it was Our Lady's practice often to walk the Via Dolorosa and stop and meditate on those scenes of her son's passion, which, you know, she viewed when it was actually happening. And accompanying that the Blessed Virgin on her journey to Calvary, is really a very intimate way of meditating on the Passion in union with Our Lady. And it can be done by praying the Rosary of the Seven Dolores, which is also known as the Servite Rosary, or, or another Seven Sorrows devotion. The Seven Sorrows Rosary uh, consists of a short meditation on each sorrow, followed by the recitation of uh, seven Hail Marys for each sorrow. But probably the simplest method of honoring the seven sorrows or, or seven dolors of Our Lady is simply to announce the sorrows one at a time and say a Hail Mary for each. You know, I used to use that shorter method as part of my morning prayers. So here then are the seven sorrows of Mary. Number one, the prophecy of Simeon. Number two, the flight into Egypt. Number three, the loss of the child Jesus in the temple. Number four, the meeting of Jesus and Mary on the way to Calvary. Number five, the crucifixion. And number six, the taking down of the body of Jesus from the cross. And number seven, the burial of Jesus. And then finally, the chaplet of divine mercy. Our Lord Jesus gave the divine mercy message to St. Faustina Kowalska uh, in the 19th century. And in her diary, she shared Jesus' desires to extend his merciful love to all who will accept this. 
She also wrote about the practice of meditating on the passion of Christ. Jesus told her there is more merit to one hour of meditation on my sorrowful passion than there is to a whole year of flagellation that draws blood. Remember, religious used to have, still do that, right? It was you know, often just called the discipline, but they would take maybe a knotted cord and, and um, strike themselves with it as, as a mean of penance, right? He says that uh, meditating on his passion is, is more fruitful than that. He says, the con contemplation of my painful wounds is of great profit to you, and it brings me great joy. So praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet is another effective way to meditate on Christ's suffering for our sins. And there are no, um, no prescribed meditations for the decades of the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, but certainly you could meditate on each of the five uh, mysteries, sorrowful mysteries of the Rosary as you pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, especially during Lent. Now, Pope John Paul II said that after prayer, the two most important things for Catholics to survive the third millennium is to study the Bible and the Catechism. Now, I've already mentioned the Gospel accounts, but a significant portion of the Catechism is devoted to explaining the Passion of Christ, that is, his suffering, crucifixion, and death. And so I wanted to share some insights into the Church's important teachings on this central aspect of Christ's mission. And, and the first is the redemptive purpose of Christ's Passion. Paragraph 599 says that Jesus's violent death was not the result of chance and an unfortunate coincidence of circumstances, but is part of the mystery of God's plan, as St. Peter explains to the Jews of Jerusalem in his first sermon on Pentecost. So the Catechism emphasizes that Christ's passion wasn't ex unexpected. You know, how many times did he prophesy that it was going to happen? It, it wasn't some accident. It was a deliberate part of God's plan for the redemption of humanity. And that's something to remember when you're carrying your own cross. Number two is the role of Christ's obedience in his passion. Paragraph, uh, paragraph 612 says, By giving up his own son for our sins, God manifests that his plan for us is one of benevolent love prior to any merit on our part. In this is love, says St. John, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins, as 1 John 4.10. Christ's obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, demonstrates the depth of God's love for mankind and his desire to reconcile us with himself. Number three is the significance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This is in the very next paragraph, 613, where it says, Christ's death is both the paschal sacrifice that accomplishes the definitive redemption of men through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the sacrifice of the new covenant, which restores man to communion with God by reconciling him to God through the blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right, That's So we hear that in Mass every day, and it's from Matthew 26, 28. The Catechism highlights that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate and definitive act of redemption through which humanity is reconciled with God and offered the forgiveness of our sins. And number four is the participation of believers in Christ's passion. This paragraph 618 explains, the cross is the unique sacrifice of Christ 
the one mediator between God and men. But because in his incarnate divine person, he has in some way united himself to every man, the possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the Paschal mystery is offered to all men. Right? Christ came for all. And the Catechism teaches that, that Catholic believers are invited to participate in the redemption, which we do by offering our sufferings in union with his. And that's no nonsense. Okay, by the way, I produced a video presentation uh, called The Way of the Cross for Children, but it's good for the entire family, and also a presentation on the Seven Sorrows, both of which are available via download at promultismedia.com. Or you can go to vmpr.org and visit the affiliate page and just click on the Promultis Media logo, which will take you to the website so that you can order. And you can either get the video or the audio version to play on your computer. And, uh, and we also have a, a free Promultis Media smartphone app where you can order and view or listen on your phone. Uh, the presentation on the Seven Sorrows includes a history of the devotion, the Rosary of the Seven Sorrows, uh, and meditations, uh, as well as a short version of the devotion for when you don't have time to pray the full Servite Rosary. Likewise, the, the video of the Way of the Cross has, uh, includes a short Franciscan Way of the Cross and kind of a mini documentary on that devotion as well. So you can check that out at promultismedia.com or click the Promultismedia logo on the affiliate page at vmpr.org. All right, uh, when we come back, Going to be looking at the readings, especially the epistle for the Sunday in Ordinary Time. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. As is our custom here, it is time now to get a word out from this week's Sunday readings. And uh, if you're just now catching up uh, for, on this year, you'll notice that we're doing readings from the ordinary form um, lectionary. We've gone through the extraordinary form lectionary several times. And so uh, since there's uh, in year B, there's some alternate readings that we don't normally talk about here. We're going to do that this year. So yesterday was the sixth Sunday in ordinary time. And I want to focus on the epistle, which was from 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, verse 1. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own good but that of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So do everything for the glory of God, seek the good of others, give no offense. In this short passage from St. Paul, there's, there's kind of a blueprint for Christian living. Uh, back in the early 2000s, I wrote a book called The Ten Commandments of Catholic Bible Study. And one of those commandments was, the catechism shall be thy first and best Bible study aid. So taking Paul's first point, the catechism has plenty to say about the concept of giving glory to God, highlighting the importance of acknowledging and praising his greatness. And here are our four relevant points from the Catechism. First, that giving glory to God fulfills the purpose of creation and human existence. Meaning and purpose of life. Paragraph 293 says, Scripture and tradition never cease to teach and celebrate this fundamental truth. 
the world was made for the glory of God. So the Catechism affirms that the entire created order, including humanity, and that includes you and me, exists ultimately to give glory to God. Number two is worship and adoration. And that's explained in paragraph 2096. Adoration is the first act of the virtue of religion. To adore God is to acknowledge him as God, as the creator and savior, the Lord and master of everything that exists, as infinite and merciful love. So the Catechism emphasizes that worship and adoration are essential ways of giving glory to God and recognizing his supreme authority and goodness. The third point is gratitude and thanksgiving. And this is in paragraph 2639, where it says, Praise is the form of prayer which recognizes most immediately that God is God. It lauds God, that is, it exalts God for his own sake and gives him glory, quite beyond what he does, but simply because he is. And the words he is are in all caps, Allah the I am of Exodus 3.14. See, the Catechism teaches that offering gratitude and thanksgiving to God is a way of giving glory to him, acknowledging his existence and his attributes. And number four is a living a life of holiness. Paragraph 2013 says all Christians in any state or walk of life are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. <clears throat> this is essentially Vatican II's definition of the universal call to holiness. And the Catechism teaches that living a life of holiness guided by the commandments and teaching of Christ is the fourth way of giving glory to God. By conforming our lives to his will and embodying his love, we reflect his glory to the world. So that's the Catechism on Paul's first point. Giving glory to God is an essential aspect of the Christian faith. This can be expressed through worship, adoration, gratitude, and living a life of holiness. By recognizing God's greatness and acknowledging his role as creator and savior, Catholic Christians fulfill our purpose of glorifying him in all aspects of our lives. And that applies every bit as much to you and I in the 21st century as to the Corinthians in the first. Paul's next point, seek the good of others. But the Catechism of the Catholic Church emphasizes the importance of seeking the good of others and living a life of, of self-giving and love. So here are four more relative, uh, relevant paragraphs. First point is love of neighbor. Paragraph 1822 says, Charity is the theological virtue by which we love God above all things for his own sake and our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. This underlines the Christian duty to love your neighbor, treating them with kindness and compassion and respect. Number two is the call to selflessness or um, unselfishness or self-giving. Paragraph 1825 explains it this way. It says, Christ died out of love for us while we were still enemies. The Lord asks us to love as he does, even our enemies, to make ourselves the neighbor of those farthest away and to love children and the poor as Christ himself. But the Catechism emphasizes that the Christian life involves going beyond mere self-interest by rejecting selfishness and actively seeking the good of others, even those, or perhaps especially those, who are difficult to love. Number three is the works of mercy. You know, we, we read in paragraphs 2447 and, and 2448 
The works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities. Instructing, advising, consoling, comforting, I would add, admonishing, are spiritual works of mercy. Right? That's not being judgmental, that's being merciful. As are forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. The Catechism underscores the various ways in which Catholic believers can actively seek the good of others, both spiritually and materially, through acts of mercy and compassion, uh, which we should especially do during Lent. And number four, once again, the universal call to holiness. Remember that uh, paragraph 2013 said all Christians are called to the perfection of charity. That means that seeking the good of others isn't limited to uh, you know, a specific group of Catholics, you know, the clergy or the religious. But rather, it's a universal call for all Christians. It's an essential aspect of living a life of holiness and striving for perfection and love. So St. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's example of seeking the good of others is a fundamental aspect of the Christian life, which calls Catholic believers to love our neighbors, even our enemies, and to actively engage in acts of mercy and self-giving. And by following his example, we strive to imitate Christ's love and fulfill our call to holiness. And so then to St. Paul's third point, give no offense. St. Paul's criterion for all his actions was not what he liked best, but what was best for those around him. And because this is a, a moral virtue, it's not an absolute, but lies on a mean between two extremes. Right? The sin of defect would be being insensitive you know, just doing it whatever you want, letting the chips fall where they may, no matter who gets hurt. And the sin of excess would be to be oversensitive and do nothing for fear that someone might be displeased, right? That is, be, you know, being a yes man, just going along with everything, trying to gain approval from men rather than from God. And in this most postmodern age of, of hyper-selfishness and oversensitivity, Making the good of others one of our primary goals uh, helps us to develop an attitude of love and service that is pleasing to God and very definitely countercultural. Catechism of the Catholic Church addresses the importance of not giving offense to others by emphasizing the need to respect their dignity and to avoid actions that may genuinely harm or scandalize them, which is something to think about this Lent, especially for folks like me with a podcast and anyone who uses social media. And now, finally, four uh, final relevant points from the Catechism. So number one is the respect for the dignity of persons. Paragraph 1930 says, respect for the human person entails respect for the rights that flow from his dignity as a creature. These rights are prior to society and must be recognized by it. And so the Catechism underscores here the fundamental principle of respecting the dignity of every person, which includes refraining from actions that may offend or harm them. Number two is avoiding scandal. Paragraph 2284, scandal is an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. The person who gives scandal becomes his neighbor's, neighbor's tempter. He damages virtue and integrity. He may even draw his brother into spiritual death. The Catechism highlights the importance of not giving scandal, which refers to you know, actions or attitudes that might lead others into sin or harm their spiritual well-being something very much on my mind when I feel called to criticize what's happened in the church since Vatican II, or even what's happening today. Which brings us to the next point, which is charity and sensitivity. Paragraph 2286 says, scandal can be provoked by laws or institutions, by fashion or opinion. Therefore, they are guilty of scandal who 
who establish laws or social structures leading to the decline of morals and the corruption of religious practice, or to social conditions that intentionally or not make Christian conduct and obedience to the commandments difficult and practically impossible. Man, there's a whole show right there. The need for charity and sensitivity in our actions, the Catechism says, as individuals and as a society, avoiding behaviors and rejecting social structures that lead others astray or make it difficult for them to live according to Christian principles. Which brings us all the way back full circle to today's red-letter Catholicism topic, which was the golden rule. You know, as we've already seen, the Catechism reminds Catholic believers of the importance of treating others with love and respect, following the example of Christ. This includes avoiding actions that may cause offense or harm to others. So be imitators of Christ following the example of St. Paul, or to be imitators of Christ following the example of St. Paul, I should say. Catholic Christians should strive to avoid giving offense to others unnecessarily. And that involves respecting the dignity of every person, refraining from actions that may lead them into sin or harm their well-being, and practicing charity and sensitivity in our actions and our relationships. Now, that doesn't mean being nice, right? <laughs> I've resolved to stop being nice because that means to avoid, uh, you know, conflict and confrontation to the point of not standing up for the truth, which we must do. But by following the golden rule, by treating others with love and respect, we fulfill our duty to not give offense and contribute to a more harmonious and virtuous society. And I'm serious. And that's no nonsense. All right. Well, we've done it again. Uh, that's another no nonsense Catholic in the bag. I want to say thank you so much for being along with us. I, I've been watching the numbers. It looks like our listenership is growing. And I want to thank you for that because I know that you are very likely responsible. Thank you for sharing this with your friends, telling folks about the no nonsense podcast, which is available wherever podcasts are. Uh, you know, every platform, wherever they are available, you will find no nonsense Catholic and tell people if they're if they're Spotify people or, or uh, you know, uh, whatever their preferred uh, preferred platform might be. Let them know they can find no nonsense Catholic there. And uh, I want to say thank you also to everyone who supports this apostolate, not only spiritually, but financially. We definitely need your prayers, but uh, we also need the help. You know, these are tough times. You know, um, what do you call them? Donations are down, kind of across the board, and uh, it, it is um, important for us, you know, to be able to continue to do this. We we cast our bread upon the waters and, and give all this stuff out for free, but it's not free to produce. So if you can help us out, God's blessed you that much, then um, we want to say, uh, uh, please consider us. You know, like Mother Angelica said, between the gas bill and the electric bill. Until next time, thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.